Why would they not make it smaller and less running, less space, more ball touches, more passing, more street? Like, am I crazy? Uh, it, that sounds a little off. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode on You Think, presented by Audiorama. Uh, all right, this is the week. We've been talking about our Pop Warner run to the championship, which could ultimately lead us to Florida, which is a crazy thought to be playing football, 11-year-old football in Florida in December. But here we are. This is game week. Uh, we had a bye last week following the city championship. So we are getting ready to play a team at a Raleigh who's very good, very well coached. Uh, they won the championship last year. I don't think they've lost. They have like five of their age groups representing their respective uh, leagues and regions or whatever um, in the regional state championship. So we have our work cut out for us, but it's been an awesome year. We're practicing. We'll be back at it uh, three times this week. We'll practice Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, give the kids off Friday. And then Saturday morning, nine o'clock, we hit it. So we are, uh, we're excited. We're anxious to see how it works out, but all we can do is have a great week of practice, have a good plan, get the kids confident, ready to rock. And uh, we'll give it our best shot. But either way, it's been, it's been an unbelievable season. The growth and development of these kids has been incredible. So we're, uh, we're really fired up and we're going to go give this things a rip. Uh, my daughter is in the middle of her soccer playoffs, So that's been fun. I've told you guys before her coach, her two coaches, um, they do a great job. They've had this group of girls now for a couple of years and to see the progress that they've made, they do a great job. Um, her love of soccer and interest in soccer is like growing by the day. So that's been pretty cool to, to watch. So our fall seasons here are kind of all coming to an end and uh, we're going to roll right into basketball in the winter. So no rest for the weary, but along those lines of my daughter playing soccer, today's guest is Skip Gilbert, a former soccer player in his own right, but he's currently the CEO of us youth soccer. It's actually the largest sports organization in the entire country. Um, talk to him about, you know, the growth of the game here, comparing it to maybe some of the other more prominent countries with the world cup coming up. Um, and, and obviously soccer is going to be on the international kind of pay, uh, stage. So it was really cool to get his perspective on how soccer has continued to grow the grassroots, uh, levels with the kids, you know, the professional leagues that are popping up both male and female. So that's been, um, it was a really fun conversation. I think it was really informative. I think he really speaks to a lot of our listeners who are trying to navigate, you know, youth sports at the, at the youngest levels. So what better person than uh, than Skip and, and his team at U.S. Youth Soccer? So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with the CEO of U.S. Youth Soccer, Skip Gilbert. Skip, thank you so much for joining us today on You Think. Well, thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. Always love to talk about soccer. I bet. Well, I got a lot. I got a lot of questions for you. I told you before we started. I I got a daughter. She's ten. So we are just revving up her soccer. She's played for a few years, but I've gotten, I, I don't have any soccer background. I, I didn't play it. Um, none of my family members played it. So I'm learning it now through my daughter. I have to say, I really enjoy it, but we're going to get into that here in a little bit. I, I first just want to start with, with you and a little bit of your journey on how you got to be with us, um, you soccer and, and some of your experiences as a professional and, and playing soccer and just kind of your, your career and life in soccer that has led you now to, to running as we said, the, the largest um, youth organization in the entire country. 
Sure. No, my background started on the field, um, played soccer right up through high school, college, the old NASL, a little bit of time with the national team. Um, and then finally, you know, that was back when soccer really wasn't anywhere near as big as it is today. And so uh, when the NASL folded, it was, let's get a real job. So I went into sports publishing, uh, worked for the Sporting News, Tennis Magazine, and then got onto the property side and fell into the Olympic movement. So, and I've been fortunate to have time with USA Swimming, USA Triathlon, US Soccer, um, actually outside the Olympic movement in a world that parallels you, the Arena Football League, um, and then eventually found my home here at US Youth. Well, you're back, I'm sure, what's been your your true passion your whole life, which is obviously soccer. And you've had a chance with the, with the US team, as you mentioned, to travel all over the world. What, what was your favorite place that you you got to experience soccer like what country do you think we're going to dive into a lot of how the u.s does it and and the growth and the progress we've made but like in all your travels what country does it right like who does it the best oh good question you know the time i spent in england uh, you know i mean how can you go wrong there that is their sport i spent some time with sheffield united um, which is well north of of england and you, know, you had sheffield united but then you also had sheffield wednesday and the city was truly divided by which team they were going to root against and it, it was interesting is every monday morning you could tell the, the whether the team won or lost by the mood of the city it was uncanny and god forbid you were on one side versus the other you know and again as i tried to describe it to sort of the americans well before now soccer is where it is today you know i'll use the football analogy it's kind of like growing up in new york are you a jets or a giants fan are you yeah. you know and so how do you how do you make that difference but you know it really becomes and what England does so well is soccer is part of their culture. It's part of their lifestyle. And, you know, watching that unfold from the time kids start playing till the time they're in the Premier League, you know, they just do it right. Yeah, talk a little bit more about the culture of not only soccer, but the culture of like soccer fandom. I had an opportunity to play over in, in Tottenham. We went over and played the London game back in 2019. We played in the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And obviously we weren't playing soccer, but the, the environment, the fans in the stadium, like it remind when we were playing, it reminded me of watching a soccer game. And for anyone who's watched a football game and watched a soccer game, it's a very different fan experience as far as the constant cheering, the noise that like, what is it about the culture of soccer? Not, you know, not necessarily just in America, but just across the world and what makes it so unique? You know, I think... I mean, with everybody talks about the beauty of the game, you know, and there's that great Nelson Mandela quote that talks about how sport connects people. You know, it's a, it's a language kids can understand. And from the very get go, all you need are a pair of shoes and a ball. You know, you don't even need fields to be able to go out and play. And so when kids around the world start playing, it just becomes part of, you know, you say how they express themselves on the field to play, that there are some players that are just, you know, the bulldogs that'll just run right through you. But then there are also those that have the flair, the drama that, you know, can can work the ball and the magic with their feet and be able to take it up and down the field to play. You know, and then there are those that are sort of the orchestratic leaders that just can see 
see everything in front of them and can direct where their teammates need to be. So regardless of if you've played for a year or 20 years, you kind of get that sense of what the game is all about. And it becomes part of you so that you can't escape it, whether you're out on the field to play, watching from the fans or yelling at your TV set, you know, how the, each of those players should be able to move, carry the ball and run off the ball. So it does become part of your, you know, it, it becomes part of your persona. Yeah. And, and I think you, you mentioned earlier culture. It seems like there is such a, such a unique and distinct culture to the game. And I, I want to dive a little into that right now. If you, right now, the, the way we're experiencing soccer in America is very different than even just 10 years ago, let alone, you know, 20, 30, 30 years ago, we see the rise of the NWSL and the women's game. Of course, our women's national team every year on the international level, you know, with the Olympics and FIFA is just at a high level. Our men's team now, we're all excited, obviously, for the World Cup to watch them here in a couple of weeks. Talk a little bit like, was there a tipping point where the leaders of the United States, you know, yourself at the youth level and then and then beyond was there a moment, was there a tipping point at some time recently where you guys got together and said, hey, we need to address the culture of soccer in America. We need to make it sexier. We need to make it cool. We need to make it more you know, ingrained in the fabric of our culture. Like, was there a conscious effort or you just think it's been just with time and with excitement like anything else, it's just kind of played a natural course to where we are today? You know, I'm, I'm sure those who are in leadership positions would like to be able to put their hands up and say, oh, yeah, that was a conscious decision. But the reality, it has to be an organic growth. And realistically, I mean, again, back when I played in the NASL, we played in football stadiums. And when I played with the Rowdies, we played in what I guess where they called it the Sombrero, 80,000 people. And so even if you had a good crowd, it was like you were playing in a scrimmage. But what ended up happening is with with Major League Soccer and, and Don Garber made some really great moves by by forcing a lot of the teams to create soccer specific stadiums. You know, it started in Columbus with the crew and now almost every team is playing in a soccer specific stadium. And if they're not, I mean, like Atlanta, they're playing where the Falcons play, but they sell out every game as well. So what it does is it, it, it enables you know, by by having a sellout crowd, you get that emotional fervor. You know, you can really feel it. You can hear it. You can sense it throughout the stadium. And then when you start to put teams in, in kind of the same locations, like you have with Portland and Seattle and Vancouver, you create those um, those rivalries, you know, not necessarily by design, but just because it's it's close in proximity. And that starts to mirror what you see in Europe. You know, we get we get conversations all the time. Well, you should you should create player development pipelines like we have in Holland or England or Germany. Well, that's great. But those countries are the size of Delaware. And so, you know, for us to be able to do it, we have to almost Americanize it. But the leagues have done very well to be able to create that sense of passion by geography by having teams close together and, 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 and number of fans that can get in. So I think organically it's, it's really taken hold. And you bring up an interesting point because I see it where I live here in Charlotte, just the, uh, just this past year, the Charlotte FC uh, MLS expansion team that we got a couple of years ago, just played their inaugural season. They play it at the Panthers stadium where the Carolina Panthers NFL team plays. They get tremendous crowds it is a buzz. They had a really good year considering they were an expansion team. They like just missed the playoffs by a game or so at the end of the year. Like, but you could feel the energy of soccer 
changed. When you mentioned like it has to come organically through the, the youth soccer scene here in Charlotte, it, again, in my just novice experience and, and, and limited exposure to it, is growing because there is a soccer excitement in the air through the professional team. Is, is that something that you guys at the youth level, obviously you recognize, is that a conscious effort to say, hey, where, where we have some of these big MLS or NWSL franchises, like we can kind of ride their coattails a little bit on the youth scene and play off some of that, some of that excitement and some of that emotion. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, very fair. You know, and again, the aspirational impact of sport, you know, has to be there. You know, if you don't, as any, as any kid, you know, many kids realize at, at a certain age that they're not going to end up playing in, as a, as a professional. They just want to play for social reasons, for fun, you know, to get out and have exercise, whatever, whatever it might be. But there will be kids that, that clearly get that passion, but they also realize internally they have the skills. But they want to know what's the inspirational and aspirational elements to be able to fulfill those dreams. And so having in the United States, you have NWSL, which is doing you know incredibly well at this point, MLS certainly, and even USL with its both on the men and women's side. Now you have franchises in all different size communities. So you know we spent a lot of time in Colorado Springs when I was with some of the other NGBs and the switchback now in Colorado for the USL has a great following of seven or 8,000 a game. But again, you get, it's such a tight stadium that you just get that feel, whether it's there or whether it's in Charlotte, you know, it's the same. Yeah. I think that's so true. Now, now just take a step back for a second. When, when comparing, we, we started by talking about how well they do it over in England and Germany and some of the European countries, but you brought up a good point. You know, sometimes that what they're dealing with is not exactly apples to apples. They're not as large. They don't have the same population size, the same issues. Like looking holistically across the board at just the game of soccer in America. Like when you go down the list, like what are the challenges? Like what are the challenges that you guys face, not only at the youth level, but all the way up through some of the developmental pipelines into the academies. And then of course, into the professional levels, like what, what hurdles do we have here in America that are unique that maybe they don't have in some of the other European, you know, South Central America, South, South American countries that are kind of like the, the gold standard, especially in the men's game, the gold standard of international soccer. You know, there, there are two that are, are really easy to talk about. One is the fractionalization. You know, you have so many different pathways and the easiest way to describe it is again, comparing it to football in football, you have pop Warner high school, college pro. In soccer, you could come U.S. Youth, you could have U.S. Club, U.S.A., S.A.Y., A.Y.S.O. It's an acronym jungle. And kids, if kids have a hard time understanding which pathway can get them to, you know, MLS or the U.S. national team, coaches, parents, you know, everybody is right in the same state of confusion. So it makes it very competitive in terms of you get more teams and coaches out there saying, come play with us. And we want to take teams from the other pipelines to make our lane stronger versus 
let's focus on player development or let's focus on what can we do. The big point is how do we keep the 11 and 12 year olds that aren't going to be playing MLS? How do we keep them playing for the fun of it? Because now they're being labeled as just rec players. And, and so in one sense, you know, that's a, an issue. The other, and I've talked about this and even written about this in, in, with Sports Business Journal and other articles, is the pay to play model. You know, in, in many youth sports of today, unless you come from a certain demographic, it's very difficult to get seen where, you know, and, and I sometimes compare youth sport to, to the educational system. You know, a lot of kids will come up through the public schools and do extremely well, but you're always going to have parents that are more than happy to pay for private schools, pay for Ivy League educations, you know, whatever they can do to get their kids ahead. In sport, especially at the youth level, we have private sport, but we really don't have a public lane, which is where England, Germany, and all the other countries, government subsidies, you know, most Olympic NGBs are subsidized by the government. In the United States, it's separate. They, the, the U.S. government does not pour money into the Olympic movement, nor does it pour money into the, you know, the, the youth sport infrastructure. So that, that makes it really challenging when you put those two pieces together in soccer. Why is that? Is, is it, is it on purpose? Is it just philosophy? Like what, what do you take as the reason why we'll take Europe, for example, like why does Europe approach their not only Olympic sports, but just the youth sports framework, you know, as a government subsidy, a kind of a government run organization pipeline versus our approach here? Is it just cultural? I think it is. I mean, I, if you look, at, that's the way it's always been. It's worked really well in Europe. Again, it's a smaller geography. I mean, again, I, I'd said, you know, if you look at Holland, it's the size of Delaware. Well, if we had just Delaware playing and they would most likely, and then they do through their state association, they very well could just take youth sport and, and move in that direction. But we have, you know, 50 states and every state has a state association. And so there's a lot of different components to it. Most sports in the United States have sort of a singular path. You know, when I when I was at USA Swimming, if you want to if you want to compete in the Olympic Games, you came through USA Swimming. Um, you if you were going anywhere else, if you got to that level and your your times were strong enough, eventually you came into the NGB pathway. U.S. Soccer opened up the pathway years ago, primarily I, I believe because of legal challenges, but they they opened it up and allowed a lot of different sanctioning bodies to have that pathway. Good, bad, or indifferent, it's the scenario that we play under. And, you know, we've able to manage it, but it's still a challenge. And I'd be curious your take. Another one of the common themes that you hear a lot of people talk about is just in America, there are so many other sports that sports are competing with athletes, especially in this world of specialization when we're asking young kids to choose one sport so early. And, and we can dive into that a little more later, but do you, do you see that as part of the challenge where, if, if, for example, if you're growing up in, in some of these countries, you know, you're pretty much gravitating towards soccer, you know, tennis, you know, golf, like they have their cultural sports that they're, that their kids grow up idolizing their heroes and whatnot in America. There's a lot of options now, right? So everyone's fighting for the same athletes, but they're playing football. They're playing basketball. They're playing baseball. They're now playing lacrosse. Then of course there's the individual sports swimming and golf and you know, so soccer is competing amongst all those different. Is, is that a factor as far as attracting, quote unquote, the top athletes into the game? 
Ab- absolutely. It, it, it certainly is. And as much as we're very pro- a, a strong proponent of multi-sport play, you know, again, we want kids up until a certain age playing as many different sports as you can, just because of the muscular skeletal benefits that come with that, not just, uh, again, from a from that and, and the mental side, but the difference is, and, and you alluded to it, in Europe and many other countries, soccer is the number one sport. So a lot of the kids come up playing tennis or running track or playing cricket or whatever the sports are, but the best world-class athletes will gravitate to soccer. In the United States, you've got so many different sports, but the world-class athletes are most likely going to go to basketball and to football, maybe to baseball, um, and, and some maybe even to hockey as a, as a different choice, but not necessarily soccer is the first. If we can change that narrative, then all that, that, that changed the game and gives us much better world-class athletes to compete at the World Cup level. But again, it's a challenge. That, that's super. I've always found that that part of the the conversation super fascinating. So I, I kind of want to now take us to the real nuts and bolts of 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 what you do and why uh, what we do here on You Think, which is is of course serve the youth sports community, which I know is right up right up your alley and right in your wheelhouse. So knowing all these things we've discussed, right? We've talked about you know the comparison internationally, the the struck, you know the issues and the and the obstacles we face here in in, in the states. What are the now? What are we doing at the youth level? to address it? Like, how are you guys combating knowing these things? Like, where do you see the trends going? Do you see participation levels increasing? Do you see your ability to attract, you know, the quote unquote high level athletes at an earlier age? Like, what are you seeing now in real time in regards to a lot of these, these challenges that you, that soccer is facing in America, but that on the positive side? Sure. Well, the numbers that we're seeing for today are coming back to where we were pre-pandemic. So that from that standpoint, it's really strong. Um, we're also seeing, you know, the numbers of the kids leaving the sport getting younger and younger. And again, I think that comes to the professionalism of the coaching at a younger and younger age. So we're trying, I, I mentioned this earlier, we need alternative programming. So it's not just the pay to play, the the experienced professional coaches that everybody's striving to, to be able to get that D1 scholarship. We need to be able to have alternative programming so that any kid can be able to play. And we partnered with the U.S. Soccer Foundation to bring our success in schools program together so that we can get into communities that may not have soccer in their curriculum. They're from the underprivileged, underserved, however you want to identify Title I schools that may not be able to you know, to embrace many different sports, to give them the access to soccer, to train their their uh, teachers to be able to promote the game, to coach the game, and to give more kids the opportunity to see what the game is all about. So we're taking those steps, uh, you know, across from the from the you know the the first time a kid plays to when they get to that point where hey they may about they're they're about to get drafted by either you know MLS or NWSL so and everything in between so we're taking those steps yeah and and it's interesting a couple months ago we had Sam Munis the um, from the US national team she was on with her father and talking about her and her sister obviously both played on the US national team um and you know the father taking out a second job and just what that looked like playing competitive you know competitive youth soccer in America at a very young age. My daughter's not at that level yet. She's young. She hasn't got there, but I experienced a very similar, you know, I experienced a very similar, you know, kind of path with my two boys playing travel baseball. So 
I know it's a little different, but a very similar. So I want to talk a little more about what you said, like the professionalization, the pay to play model of what's going on across pretty much all sports in America, which is if you want to play on the top teams, there comes with a cost. If you want to play on the top teams, you're going to travel. That comes with inherent costs. Like give us an idea. What does playing quote unquote top level competitive soccer, say for a middle school child, boy or girl in America, like what does that experience look like cost time restraints? Like I know what it's like in the baseball community, but I would love to hear like you describe what that, what, just to give our viewers an idea of when you say this is not easy, this is financially challenging. This is time commitment. Like explain to our viewers, like exactly what that looks like. You know, if you're, as you get into your early teens and then rise up into the high school ages, you know, it, it almost becomes a full-time job. Um, you are playing, you are practicing three to five times a week. You're playing on the weekends. You may be traveling on some weekends. Um, you are a part of a, of a machine, whether your team is one of several teams within the club. Uh, again, it, we have all different sizes throughout the entire nation. Um, some plant parents will be paying anywhere from hundreds of, of, of dollars a year or a, a, a season um, to thousands of dollars for a season. You know, soccer, I believe, is not necessarily at the top end of the expensive sports, um, but it's certainly not at the lower end. And so, you know, again, it just depends on where you are and the commitment that your your son or daughter, you know, truly wants to take. And, you know, what what we try to do and the educational component that we try to have is we want to make sure, and and from my perspective, you know, you want to make sure that the kids are vested in it. You know, this is not something for parents to decide. You know, if you want your kid to be at that A-level team going all around the country to play in showcases, to be seen, to be scouted, and hopefully earn a spot on a D1 or a national team or professional rank, you want to make sure that the kid actually is right there with you. You know, and, and we often see way too early parents who already have decided that their kids are going to be a D1 scholar at the age of nine. And it's, you know, it's kind of hard to, to walk them back because what ends up happening is they start to take the mode of they're their kid's general manager. And so therefore, and you see it all the time, they're standing on the sidelines, yelling at the other team, yelling at the referees, yelling at the coaches, the and yelling at their kids on the drive home because they're so focused on getting the, their return on investment that they're blinded by really what's why are they doing this? The kid has to be having fun. And if he or she is not having fun and truly wants to be there, maybe the brake should be pumped. That, that's a, I mean, I get it. I, don't get me wrong. I've yelled on the sidelines before. So I'm not sitting here saying that I'm not in that group, but I've, I've seen it. I I've seen, I've seen all sides of it. I've seen it through the baseball world. My kids now are put, my son is playing pop Warner football, which football is a little different because there's not year round true tackle football. Now it's like the seven on seven league. So football is kind of getting into that world for a long time. It was kind of immune. That's why growing up, I didn't really have any of these challenges, but I've seen it. And I think it raises a really good point. Like what, how do we educate the parents? Like, how do we educate the parent? There's, there's the adults to me always have the biggest impact on the kid's experience, right? There's two parties that there's the parents, of course, and then there's the coaches. We'll get to the coaches in a minute. What is like, do you guys have any 
you mentioned materials and, and, and different education processes that you have for coaches and parents. Like what do you guys do at us youth soccer to try to help educate these parents and just give them a better idea of not only what does this journey look like and where do they fit into the picture, but also like better ways to manage their kids, better ways to manage expectations and keep things age appropriate and kid led, you know, over the course of these sequence of events. Oh, absolutely. A year ago, we launched USYS University. And as much as we have the X's and O's to help people how they succeed on the field through it, a lot of it and a majority of the curriculum is designed for off-field behavior modification um, and, and really the educational for becoming better parents. The issue that we're seeing, and this is where we're actually right now going through these changes, is that when, when parents register their kids to play, most of the parents will register through their team or their club or their league. And so by the time we get that registration, we don't have that direct line back to the back to the parents. And so we're trying to change that so that anytime a parent registers, let's say you're going to register your daughter for spring soccer, you would get a welcome kit for us from us that talks about, hey, if you want to really learn the new the ins and outs of what it's like to be a soccer parent, go here. And then we have all of this information so that you can really almost self-test to see, you know, am I doing this for the right reasons? And really, what are the pathways available for me as a parent and as a family if we want to go down this journey together? You know, and so we're, we're, we're taking those changes from a registration component, but also from an educational component so that parents become more aware of, of what's out there and, and really the realities, because, you know, we all know it. Most clubs are absolutely doing the right thing. And I'm sure you've seen it in baseball that 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 clubs will sell themselves on getting your child a D1 scholarship. And you have to do this, this, this and this. But they may be telling you a certain component of that pathway, but not necessarily the full picture. I'll tell you, if you guys can crack that code and, and it sounds like you're, you're, you're on the right course, you know, specifically in soccer, but I think what you just described as a template across the entire landscape of youth sports, if you guys can pull that education, the, the parental education component to like navigating this journey, you guys are onto something big because I, I even think about myself as someone who's been around sports his whole life. I've had to learn the baseball route because I didn't live it. I didn't know anything about it. I just happened to be a parent and then, you know, slash coach of two boys who played. Now, as my daughter's gotten older and she'd always played rec soccer and it was just fun and with her girlfriends from school and she didn't take it that serious. So we didn't take it that serious. She's starting now to get the itch that she wants to take it more serious. For someone like me, what you're describing is like that welcome packet would be super helpful. Like, not to tell me not to scream and yell at her and her coach like that part. <laughs> hopefully everyone knows, but like, I don't know what the next path is. I don't know what sure. the next step is when she's 12. What's in her best interest. Like, I don't know the soccer world that well. So like what you're describing, just coming from a dad would be super, super helpful, especially for those of us who haven't lived in that particular world our entire lives. So if you guys can figure that out, kudos to you, because I think educating the adults, the parents, is to me, that's the name of the game. If you can pull that off, the whole experience gets better. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and how we're trying to, to position it is, you know, we want to be seen as the community resource for all things youth soccer. And again, 
part of the charge is not necessarily trying to stay to our lane. I mean, if there are kids that are playing AYSO or AYSO Select that want to get information like that or their parents, absolutely, we want to be able to provide that without the sales pitch to, hey, come over to our, you know, our lane. We want to be able to do it because I firmly believe that rising tide benefits all boats. And the more we develop, the more we educate, absolutely, we're going to have a much better end result, which is more kids playing the game, more kids staying in the game so that by the time they get to be my age, they're still connected to it. And that's that's really our vision. Our vision is to bring communities together through the power of soccer, making lifelong fans of the game. And sure, some will be national champions, but more really are going to end up just watching the game, buying tickets, being coaches, being refs, just staying connected. And that's what we want. Absolutely. And, and we mentioned the, the two kind of adult sections of the youth sports experience, the, the parents. I want to talk for a little bit about the challenges of finding good youth coaches, because I think I've said this on this show a lot. If you find a great, I don't care what the sport is for your son or daughter, whatever the sport is. If you find a great coach, you better cherish that and don't mess it up. Because in my experience, they are so few and far between someone who not only understands the game, right? Like to me, that's the easy part. Finding someone to teach a 10 year old girl soccer, finding someone to teach a 10 year old boy to field a ground ball. Like there's a million of those, but for them to really learn the life skills, the lessons, hard work, adversity, teamwork, perseverance, like all these incredible life skills that they'll carry well beyond their, their playing days that I think is why youth sports is just so amazing. Like to have someone who can do both, teach you the skills at an early age as a foundation, but also teach you the lessons that you're going to need to carry with you forward. Like to me, that's the magic formula. There's not a lot of those people out there. So like what challenges are you seeing specifically in the soccer community? And what are you guys doing to address it to say, Hey, we need to attract great coaches, whether they're parents or whether there's, they're just coaches. Like how are you guys, you know, attacking that? No, that's a great question. And it, it, it is, imperative that we get that right you know because again as you say there are some great coaches out there but if you ask any athlete that has played a sport for long enough i mean mean, i'm sure you could do the same thing and and to ask the question who is your best coach most likely the answer is going to be the coach who impacted the player's life completely not just gave them the tools to be able to succeed on the field to play and so, again, going back to our USYS University, you know, most of the of the coaching licenses that you get from U.S. soccer or, you know, you might get from USA baseball for that sport or any of the NGBs, it's all about X's and O's. And many of the sports now are seeing that coaches have to be more than just an administrator of on-field behavior. They have to be able to understand the full picture of what constitutes, you know, success for a player on and off the field to play. And and so we've incorporated again through our university, you know, there's a great US anti-doping has a great program um, called True Sport. And we've we've partnered with them to be able to bring some of those character developmental um, curriculum into our programming. So it's not just for the players and their families, but it's also for coaches, because especially coming out of the pandemic, we were very focused on coaches understand, are your players struggling? Do they have you know the mental health health issues that you need to be able to observe, to see, to react and to be able to get in front of? 
And if we're able to do that, then again, we're going to be able to elevate the stature of coaching around the country. I think, again, I'm, I'm super impressed. The fact that not only are you guys aware of it, I think all leagues and organizations and foundations are aware of the challenges. I just don't think there's a lot of team leagues and organizations that are taking like practical steps to address it. So to hear that you guys have this like very concrete multi-step plan to attack these things, I commend you guys because I've seen a lot of different sports through as a parent, as a coach on this show. And I I have to say like, not everyone has a great plan for it. So I commend you for that. I want to transition into another topic that I think is, is really at the crux of the youth sports conversation today, which is the balance between competition and development. Right. And I think at times they overlap, but I also think at times the adults, I'll put myself in that category. We parents slash coaches, we view them as two separate things. So, you know, for example, everyone wants their kid to be on the best team, right? They want to go to the best tournaments and they want to be noticed and seen and whatnot. But oftentimes those teams approaches, we just need to acquire the best talent. And if your child is not good enough, the next tryout, we're just going to replace them. I'm kind of on the more of the middle ground where it's like, once I get you, I need to develop everybody, right? So to me, the the role of a youth coach is to win as a result of doing things the right way, which number one is getting these kids to improve, getting them to learn. So like when on that spectrum of the the competition winning at all costs, and then at the grassroots level of just introducing basic skills and young development, you know, the rec, the church league, that kind of level, there's a lot of ways in between to cut this. So like, where are you guys philosophically on that spectrum as far as like finding ways to, yes, we want kids to compete. We want them to learn to win and and go out, but we also need to teach them the skills and teach them the foundational level movements and skill sets that they can keep with them as they grow older and hopefully continue playing, you know, whatever sport it is. Yeah, we've, it's, it's a tough challenge because kids develop at different ages. You know, and we see it all the time. You get a kid who's 10 years old and is the fastest player on the field, scoring all the goals. It's the go-to person. You know, her teammates will pass her the ball all the time. By the time the kid gets to 15, you know, he or she is basically at the same speed. But everybody else has developed in a different manner and have moved beyond it. So you have to be able to almost temper the actual pathway to be able to best suit the player. So what that means is as much as our competitive side is really strong, I mean, we have a national league, it's 13 conferences, 120,000 players, you know, that play all year round. We know that that's a pretty solid system where you really need to focus is back at the recreational level, because there are kids that are 10, 12, maybe even 14, that the light hasn't turned on yet. But in many sports, and soccer being one, if you're at that level of recreational play, the number of chances you have starts to diminish to where you're almost, I'd said this earlier, you know, you're just a rec player. And so you get that into your psyche that you're not playing with your friends, you're not good enough to travel, I'm not really having fun, I'm going to go somewhere else. And so we need to create alternative programming. And from my perspective, you know, being able to find, you know, 3v3, 5v5, so your small-sided games so that you're not in that same box. You're practicing a couple of times a week. You're playing 11-11 on the weekends. But if you're playing, you're still out there playing and developing, 
maybe when you get to 15 or 16, and we're starting to see it, kids that just are playing for fun, the light goes on, and suddenly now they're starring at their high school level. And so we need to be able to complement the, the, the more um, elite level of programming with really strong recreational programming so that they come together and there is that easy path so that if you develop later in life, you still feel like you can belong. I think that's so true. I, I've always felt that, and we all probably contribute to it. I, I throw, again, I throw myself in this bucket. There's probably like a, a, a stigma on the quote unquote rec player. Right. We've created this culture. We've created this framework where there's so many, you know, quote unquote, elite travel alternatives in all sports. This isn't unique to soccer. I see it in baseball. I see it in every sport. But then all of a sudden the kids who just play, oh, they just play rec. Like I find myself saying that and I have to check myself being like, no, like my daughter plays rec now. It's appropriate for her. It's where she's comfortable. It's where she's growing. But maybe when she's older, different than the boys, she'll get into it later. And great. So like, how do we fight that stigma? Like, how do we fight that stigma that there's nothing wrong at a young age of playing quote unquote rec sports, youth level or it's town or whatever and say, that's okay. Like we can't chase kids away from the game. If at 10 years old, they're not able to make the travel ball team. You know, and again, about a year and a half ago, we launched something called league America. And it's, it's, it's something that we don't, we can't mandate it to this 54 state associations within our association. So a number of states are starting to take it. And it's an overarching, almost branding theme for recreational soccer. Because again, if you're just a rec player, you don't feel like you belong to something bigger. Ultimately, where we want League America to go is that it becomes the largest youth soccer league in the in the country and albeit in the world and so it gives those kids the sense that well we play league america and we're talking to our counterparts at u.s adult soccer and i've said take league america and put it into your programming because how cool would it be if an eight-year-old says i play in the same league as my mom or I play in the same league as my dad, because ultimately, no matter how, you know, how well your skills progress, and if you play Major League Soccer, you play in the World Cup, at some point, you get older, and you're going to retire, but you still might want to play in an adult league. And if you start in League America, get really good, and then retire after playing in League America, that continuum, you know, it's kind of like one of the benefits of tennis and golf, where they say it's a cradle to grave sport, you can play it straight through. Well, if we start programming kids to think that way, then again, we've done our job to make kids fans of the game for life, so that they feel like they can play League America when they start, they can play League America when they finish, and they can do whatever they want in between. That's really interesting. I, I think that's a, that's a brilliant, brilliant idea. Anytime you can kind of make those like pipelines longer and more encompassing, I think it's super smart. I, I think that's a really interesting play before I let you go. I, I told you, I have a couple questions as far as it specifically that I've experienced now as a father. So I'm going to just put you on the spot and just ask you a couple sure. questions as someone who doesn't know a lot about soccer. So my daughter's 10 and she plays with the same group of girls for the last couple of seasons. They have a blast. The the two guy the one guy who coaches it's a dad and and the other lady who coaches it is just like a nice coach. She's not a parent. She's not the mother of any of the kids. She's just a nice girl that does some training. She I met her through um, the Charlotte FC folks because she ran a lot of their grassroots stuff. So the two of them have coached it for the last three seasons. They do a great job. 
I go to the games and I feel like there's eight girls on the field or yeah. So there's they play eight V eight. One of them's a goalie and the field is gigantic. It's, I think it's a real size field. I think it's a hundred yards by whatever the dimensions are. It's huge. Why do young girls play on such a big field? Like why would they not make it smaller and less running, less space, more ball touches, more passing, more street. Like, am I crazy? Uh, it, that sounds a little off. I mean, I, again, I, I can't even tell our, you how big this field is. It is enormous. It probably isn't an, an 11 v 11 <laughs> regulation size field. I mean, we run, we run at our regional championships. We will run a U 12 division. We won't take it any further. We don't think that that age should go to a national championships. It's just too young, but the U 12s do play on a, on a smaller field. Um, and it, and it, it's, it's small enough. So it's compact. And how, it, how big, and like when you say small, how big? Oh gosh, I should know that. But, uh, I would say it's, it's probably half the size of a large, of a regular size, so a regular field, field, a regular, like if you're in regular, high school, it's is 110 by probably 60, 70. Yeah, it's slightly I mean, bigger, it's than, a bigger than a football field. Yeah. That's um, what I thought. But a, a U12 should almost be, if you took a football field, cut it in half, you could, you could put them in that half of a field. Oh no, this, this field is 90 yards, a hundred yards long. It's massive. Yeah, to me, yeah. I, by and the I end sure, of the game, by I the end of the game, the by the end of the that game, these hot. girls are big. exhausted. That seems know. a bit big. It I'll seems silly. Circle, I'll circle back and send you the Please actual do. dimensions. I, I'm very curious, like what other areas do, because for as much as they do great, like the coaches are great. The league is organized. The games have no drama. They have young kids officiating the games. It's great. The Saturday mornings. I love going to my daughter's games because I don't coach it. I bring my little chair. I set it up at the midfield. I sit on the bleachers. I cheer. I clap. I don't know a ton about what's going on. All I ask is that she plays hard and she runs and she gets involved and just competes. And then we go for hot dogs. Like it's awesome. It's so different than my boys experience, but I find myself sitting there and I'm like, it's like I'm watching a track practice. They do more running than they do touching the ball. And I just feel like if we just tighten them up a little bit, you talk about development and skill. I know it's almost more like a futsal type approach. If, if the goalkeeper were to punt the ball, is it likely that it's going to, and gets a really good punt out, could it go to the other goal in the way no, that they, they can't, they serve? can't punt the ball and get it to midfield. No, that's the, yeah, that, that no. seems a bit, that seems a bit big. <laughs> oh no. If our, if our, so these girls are 10, maybe some of them are 11. Yeah. Now that seems a bit, big. I can get you, I'll get you the actual I'm dimensions. Because it, be. it drives me crazy and it seems stupid. And it seems like I'm, I don't know anything. Cause I don't, I'm the first to admit, I don't know what's going on, but I've been around sports enough to know it just, it'd be like playing basketball. Like when we go play to our boys, basketball games, they play on like a small field. When we go to baseball, they play on a, a pro, you know, a smaller size field. I don't know. That was the one question I was like, I'm going to ask Skip if there is a standardization of ages 
So like in baseball, there's a standardization of ages, nine and 10. They play on 65 foot bases and the mounds 46 feet. Now the fences could vary, but the feet, the infield is the same. Then when they go to 12, U, they go to 70 feet. Oh no. When they go to 11, U, they go to 70 feet, 50 foot bases, yeah. so on and so forth. So there's like a process, but that's the same everywhere. Is there, so I there guess my question is, is yeah, there a standardization? I, I, for some reason, I don't have them etched in my mind, but it's okay. Um, I was just standard. curious. I was just curious. Well, that, that I, I needed to get that question off. So I guess my, here's my last question for you. Like, what is the future? Like, what is the future of youth, of youth soccer in America? What are the things that excite you? Where, where do you see it continuing to grow and develop at that grassroots youth level? You know, with the World Cup coming to the United States in 26, the Olympics coming in 28, potentially the Women's World Cup coming maybe in 31, um, you know, the world is coming to the United States to play. Um, and from our perspective, everything that we're doing between now and then is designed to be able to attract as wide of an audience as possible, to be able to learn to love the game, to be able to get it to be part of their culture, their lifestyle, um, and to appreciate what the game has to offer. You know, we ultimately, yes, we'd love every kid to play soccer. We'd love every kid to play multiple sports. And then we want those kids that are truly passionate to stay with it, to take their career as far as, as they go. And no matter where they are in that progression, we as an organization, you know, at U.S. Youth, we want to be able to support the kids, the players, the referees, the parents, the coaches, all of those different constituent groups to be able to get the most out of the sport and help them succeed on and off the field to play. That's what we want. I love it. And I think across the board through the entire youth framework, I think we'd all agree that that's what we all want for all the sports regardless. So I, I, Skip, thank you so much again, Skip Gilbert, um, the head of uh, U.S. Youth Soccer, largest youth organization in the country. Um, thank you so much for joining us on You Think. I found this incredibly interesting. I think our fans and our listeners are going to get a ton out of this. Um, and I just wanted to say thanks for taking some time to join us here on You Think. My pleasure, Greg. Thanks very much. Appreciate the invitation. You got it. Anytime. We're going to have you back. We're going to, we're going to have another conversation here shortly. We got to, as I uncover more things about my soccer experience. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Skip Gilbert. Um, skips with us youth soccer, um, largest youth organization in the entire country. So it was really cool to have him on and share some of his perspectives about not only soccer, but just the, the changing landscape of, of how we kind of view and how we, how we see youth sports, uh, continue to evolve in, in America. So it was a really cool conversation. Appreciate skip for joining us, um, at this time without further ado, going to bring in Tasha, Tasha, my producer comes to us with all sorts of cool questions off the internet, Instagram, social so I'm always anxious to uh, to hear what Tasha has in store. So what's up, Tasha? Hey. Yeah, the first one is a fun one. They said, Jeff Saturday was named head coach. What did you think when you heard of the news? And did you get to watch some of Sunday's games? So I, I didn't get to... I watched some of the early slate. Um, so I watched pieces of it. We get to the game early when we have... We had the four 425 Eastern time. We were in Green Bay for the Cowboys uh, Packers game. So we watched some of the one o'clock slate. Um, from the booth and but then any of the afternoon games obviously we just catch like the scores and highlights throughout the course of the game during breaks or whatever but um yeah I, I so my brother actually texted me he's like Jeff Saturday and I was like what about him he's like he just got named interim coach of the Colts and I was like what 
So like, I, I wasn't exactly sure. And then of course you go on Twitter and everyone's reacting and everyone's giving you their two cents. Like we care. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, it's unconventional. It's weird, but you know what? Why not? Why not give it a shot? I mean, it's a, it's a season where you're struggling. And I think sometimes you got to think outside the box, right? I mean, in my heart of hearts, do I think I could be an NFL head coach? Hell yeah. Do I want to do it? No. But do I think I can do it? Absolutely. I, I think this, na- this notion that in order to be a good head coach, you have to give your entire life to coaching, I, I think is nonsense. I think we see it in all different aspects of society where some of the most successful people are successful in areas that maybe they don't have a lot of experience in. But here we have a guy in Jeff Saturday. He's played at the highest level. He's played a position that requires him to be very cerebral and very smart and understands the game. He's been around Hall of Fame players. He's been around Hall of Fame coaches. So just because he hasn't been a coach, now he, he might stink. I don't know how it's going to all work out. He's 1-0, so we'll see. But I think to just completely disregard his qualifications for the job just because he hasn't worked his way up from an assistant and sleeping in his sleeping on the couch in his office and working 40 hours a week for no money. Like we have this idea that that's the only way you work your way up. And I just don't think that's just not the reality of our world anymore. I think we see people that get opportunities and do well and people that get opportunities and don't do well. So I hope Jeff Saturday does great. I have no idea whether he's good or bad, but obviously the leadership over there thought he was the guy that could come in and, and steady the boat so far through week one, albeit they played the Raiders who have been struggling in their own right. Jeff Saturday beat Jeff, uh, Jeff Saturday beat Josh McDaniels. Josh McDaniels has been a football coach in the NFL for a thousand years, won Super Bowls, been a head coach before. And I know it's one game sample size, but Jeff Saturday won. So how much did the experience really matter? So I don't know. I think it's a lot of to do over nothing. I think we let it play out. If he continues to win, he gets a lot of credit. If he continues to lose, they're getting a new head coach this off season anyway, yeah. and no harm, no foul. Yeah. And then, I don't know, maybe Jeff will hire you and you can coach at the NFL. We'll see. I'm going to try to keep my job that I have right now for as long as I can. (laughs) (laughs) Our next one is Joanne from Twitter. She says, if your kids didn't play sports, do you think you would still be a coach? Hmm. That's a really good question. I, I think, I think I would, I think it'd be hard based on what activities they were into, like how much time I would have to allocate to coaching other people's kids. I love the idea of working with kids and coaching and building teams and building culture, it obviously makes it a lot easier to spend all of that time when you're also bringing your own kids with you. So I think while they were young, that might've been hard, but maybe when they got older and they were kind of off in school ball and didn't require a lot of my instruction, they had their coaching or whatever the case may be. Could I have seen myself getting into coaching other people's kids without mine? Yeah, I think so. I, I really enjoy the whole idea of building team, building culture, improvement, development, you know, working with the kids, earning the trust of the families. I just really enjoy that whole process. So I think it's a good question. And I, and I don't think it'd be completely out of the realm of possibility. Um, if that was the situation. And then our final audience question says, is there a coach or player that you admire yourself, but you haven't had the chance to meet yet? You know, I've been, I've been fortunate that, you know, a lot of the, the top tier coaches, um, that I've always held in high regard, especially in in the world of football, I've gotten to meet, you know, I I think there's so many other really good coaches in other sports that do a great job. Um, You know, I think like a guy like Phil Jackson, right? You you think of a guy Mm -hmm. like Phil Jackson who accomplished so much at multiple spots 
it showed that he didn't just need to be in Chicago's organization to have success. He went and he recreated it out with the Lakers. And and obviously there's a method to his approach and he's a little unconventional and he kind of does things his own way and it worked. And the guys won a bazillion NBA uh, championships. So he's a guy off the top of my head, albeit not a football guy, but just a guy that I've always just respected that he's been true to what he does. He's had incredible success, which at the end of the day is all that matters, but he's, he's had success doing it in a little bit of a different style than maybe the, the, the norm and a little bit more, you know, non-conventional. And for that, I respect him for that. All right. Well, that's all the audience questions we had today. You guys can keep submitting them on Youth Inc. or at Greg Olson on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. Tasha, thank you so much. We got a big yeah. episode for them next week, Tasha. That's right. We got Tasha's dad, Dino Babers. Stay head tuned. football coach at Syracuse. So don't miss that one. That was fun. Tasha joined the conversation. He told some fun stories about her childhood. So that was cool. So <laughs> tune in for that next week. But until then, thank you guys so much for listening to You Think, uh, for following along. Continue to rate, review, subscribe, wherever you guys get your podcasts. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks.